0: will rise and fall. The world will feel like it's crumbling around us. There will be times where we feel unable to carry on. Our most trusted people will hurt us. But God is still in control. God is still good. God is still providing. God is still faithful. Our God has been is and will be the greatest strength in our lives. We can be still because God still is. Well, hello and good morning, Riverview. My name is Justin. I am one of the pastors around these parts. Normally, I'm leading in Rio Town, uh, so it's a delight to be here with you today in Holt and uh, to be joining with you digital friends online. Hello, Internet. Um, Here's my question for us today. How can you and I be the kind of people that are faithful, resilient, and honorable despite the hardships we face? Despite these hardships, how can we be people who are truly remarkable? And I don't mean remarkable for our glory, but for God's. We're continuing this morning in in the, the still series in the book of Daniel, looking at the story of exiled Jews who have been deported into Babylon after Babylon sacked Jerusalem long ago. And today we're going to consider a story that is extremely familiar, regardless of your religious imprint, you probably have at least heard of it. And while it's very well known, I would argue it's not always well understood or well interpreted. This is the story of Daniel in the lion's den. We know the story, right? Or at least we're familiar with the cartoonish tale Right, where we tell preschoolers there's this youthful man. He gets to snuggle with kitties. Um, just the, the overview is there's some, some, some officials. They are peanut butter and jealous of Daniel. They trick the king into concocting a law that says, well, if you worship or pray to anybody besides the king, oh, you're gonna go into the lion's den. That's their capital punishment. Daniel does so, gets thrown in to a den with furry smiling faces. Good news, though, God spares Daniel's life. The enemies end end up on the lunch menu instead, and then we're left with the moral of the story that Daniel is the hero. Now, yes, he was brave and he was keeping the faith, but I wonder if, when we look into the scripture, if there is more to the picture than this. Let's dive in. This is how the uh, the account begins. Uh, Darius, he is the king of the Medo-Persian Empire They have taken over for the Babylonians Darius decided to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom Stationed them throughout the realm And over them, three administrators, including Daniel So Daniel is one of the top three right underneath the king These satraps would be accountable to them so that the king would not be defrauded. Daniel distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps because he had an extraordinary spirit. So the king planned to set him over the whole realm. Now, Babylonia at this point is a province. It's a subset of a larger empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, as I just mentioned. This is the biggest geographic empire that the world had ever known at this point, spanning over three continents, a multitude of diverse peoples. And because of its size and scope, that king is gonna wanna delegate some responsibility to some other people, to these administrators and satraps. And so their job is to collect tribute, to collect taxes, uh, to make sure that they're not defrauded. So what he wants is reliable people people that can be counted on, people that have never been on Mori Povich. That's what he wants, okay? No scandal, he wants to rule smoothly. So among his administrators, Daniel shines the brightest. He has political acumen. He has sterling character, remarkable integrity. And I just want to point out from the jump here, and I hope this is encouraging to most of us in this room. Daniel is not a professional minister. He's not a full-time priest or prophet. He's not a professional Christian, Right? This should give us hope because he is doing God's will. He is remembered as a great person of faith, functionally working well in a secular workplace. This is pertinent because I think Christians often fall into one of two traps. We either lean in this direction of separatism, where in fear we pull away, we get in a bubble and we we hide, or assimilation where we kind of do the opposite, where we sell out and we have unprincipled conformity. Daniel is living out a third option, which is actually what God had commanded not long before. When Israel, when those that were deported to Babylon in the first place, uh, the prophet Jeremiah records what they were told. This is what the Lord of the armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles, not to some, but to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. He's saying, settle and function normally in society. Be citizens. Then he goes on to say, Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. Be invested citizens for its good. So while not being of the world, uh, they are clearly commissioned to be in the world. They're sent to this nation that ruled over other nations to glorify him. And one way to do this is simply love your neighbor. Be a good citizen. Um, In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about how his followers are supposed to be salt and light. We're familiar with this, right? But salt in the ancient world wasn't just a flavor to increase your sodium. It was a preservative. It was a preservative to keep things prone to rot from, from rotting. He's saying, go be like that. And then light, we know about light. What it does, it shines in the darkness. If you cover a lamp with a bowl, uh, that's not only a complete contradiction of why the light exists in the first place, but it's also a fire hazard. We don't do that. <laughs> so, this is Daniel. He is salt and he is light. The king values him. He's excellent. He's a blessing. He's a model citizen. So, like we see in England and in other nations, The monarch, not the butterfly, but king or queen, wants to make him functionally the prime minister. Still got the king, but this is the person getting the business done. So this means functionally over the entire empire, he is number two. And if you don't get that reference, you are dead to me. This is going to arouse the jealousy of his peers, Daniel 6, verses 4 and 5. The administrators and the satraps, therefore because of the coming promotion, all right, this is where the plot against him starts, therefore kept trying to find a charge against Daniel regarding the kingdom, but they could find no charge or corruption, for he was trustworthy and no negligence or corruption was found in him. Then these men said, we will never find any charge against this Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God. Now notice, this doesn't start with a persecution complex. These are people who didn't hate his faith. They wanted his job. That's how it starts. He's going to suffer for his faith. Make no mistake, but that's not where it starts. This is a large pluralistic society, and generally these folks are okay with Jewish people being Jewish people. And so they want to start by seeing if there's any scandals, any skeletons in the closet, any trips to Vegas we don't know about, and they couldn't find any. Now, the text here is not claiming that Daniel is perfect. They're, They're just saying that he plays nice with others, He's law-abiding. He's not a hypocrite. So then they try a different tactic. They try to bring him down via his faith because they know as much as he fits in in society, they know he's also different and that his ultimate allegiance is to his God. So these officials, pretending to honor the king, uh, concoct this law that says for 30 days, anyone who prays to anyone or anything other than the king gets thrown into the lion's den. Historians paint King Darius as a very insecure man, uh, as a weak man who held a very powerful office. He's a little naive. So he, he doesn't realize that he's being played because he's too busy being flattered. And so, for the sake of his fragile ego and the legitimacy of his rule, he signs a decree into law, uh, and that law was binding. And so, when the prayer month begins, this is how Daniel responds. When Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went to his house. The windows in its upstairs room were open toward Jerusalem. Hang on to that. Jerusalem is significant. And three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed and he gave thanks to God just as he had done before. These men went as a group and they found Daniel petitioning and imploring his God. So when Daniel learns about this new law, he keeps keeping He prays to Jerusalem. This is not a random detail. While he is a faithful presence there in Babylon, he he thinks of himself as an exile, as someone that's a stranger, an alien in that world, that he's not someone who ultimately serves that throne. And and that's a question I have for all of us. Do, Do we have that kind of perspective where our citizenship ultimately, where our allegiance ultimately goes? Do we call a different place home? The Bible is not silent about this, about where we really belong in 1 Peter 2. uh, Peter says that Christians are sojourners and exiles in Philippians 3. Paul says our citizenship is in heaven, and in Hebrews 13, it speaks of a city to come. All this means is that Daniel saw a different authority that was ultimate, a cosmic ruler someone whose reign is not confined by geography like nation states that will come and go, someone whose timeline doesn't exist on a calendar. What this means for the church of Jesus is that there is no room for nationalism, not room for any nationalistic pride. There's also no room for conformity. And there's also no room for being checked out consumers who don't bless our society either. Daniel is different in this regard and this is gonna be what gets him in trouble. So the the jealous officials, they observe him. They they spy on him, praying to a different throne, and they they tattle, and and I I think they probably let a little bit of time pass just to act casual, you know, and they sheepishly came to the king. and They're like, hey, remember how you um, made this law, this decree, we we, we put you up to it, that said you can't pray to anybody else, and if you do, uh, lion's den. You remember that? Oh, by the way, on that note, we found someone in defiance of that, about that. They replied to the king, Daniel, one of the Judean exiles has ignored you, the king, and the edict you signed, for he prays three times a day. As soon as the king heard this, he was very displeased. He set his mind on rescuing Daniel and made every effort until sundown to deliver him. So here they are, and they're, they're kind of showing their hand at this point. They omit Daniel's high status that this man for decades had served faithfully, that he's basically the prime minister. And they slight him as a Judean exile. He's a foreigner. He's beneath us. And what's interesting here, though, is the text doesn't seem to indicate anyone else is signaled out, right? It's it's just Daniel. We don't hear about any underlings. It's just the guy higher up on the ladder. And what they do is they corroborate what they saw with witness testimony, that Daniel broke the law. This great pillar of our faith, he broke the law. Um, He was very civil, but he was disobedient. So let's pause here. Let's kind of put it in park and handle a relevant issue. Let's invest a few moments to talk about civil disobedience, shall we? Um, Civil disobedience is the concept on when we uh, obey or disobey a command from an authority when that command irks us in some way, shape, or form. Do you have a biblical grid for that? Or are you just picking up what other people are putting down? There's, there's one alternative out there that, that's pretty much anarchist that says you can disobey whenever you feel like it. There's the other end of the spectrum that's this kind of naive, excessive patriotism that says you have to obey no matter what. That's the defense the Nazis used in the Nuremberg trials, that they were just following orders. We as Christians want a different principle, a different approach to civil disobedience, um, one that is called biblical submission. When we submit to the bible now now this principle essentially says that we resist laws and commands rarely and basically only in two kind of cases when we are forced into false worship as we see in Daniel, or when we are required to do something evil. This is like the Hebrew midwives in the book of Exodus when they decided not to kill the, the baby boys. Um, the thing is, we're always gonna live with a measure of sin in human society. I mean, as churches, we have sin with us. As individuals, we have sin. We have to live that way. But where do we draw a line? Well, it has to be out of devotion and reverence to God. Not out of fear, laziness, defiance, uh, some some kind of spite or anger. Those are all expressions of pride. But our principle is guided by God's word. Not by partisanship or tradition or individualism. And and I want to lean in here because in our recent past, there's been a lot of confusion and controversy here. And the result is we don't live honorably. instead of ignorance and bad influences, um, I I want us to be more uh, God-honoring going forward, don't want to rehash the past, but these issues are going to pop up. That's just the world we live in because it's so tempting for us to over-spiritualize our preferences, to kind of baptize our opinions. Um, I was having a conversation with someone uh, some time ago and he was disobeying something that the Bible didn't even mention and he felt very justified in that and so I asked him about it and I said, why are you doing this? And defensively, He said, I have to follow my convictions. And I said, well, but that's not even in the scripture. Why why are you doing that? And and if it's not addressed in the canon, that's not really a conviction. That's your opinion. we got to be careful not to take ourselves too seriously. Because if the word of God doesn't go there, our general posture is to be humble, to be amicable, and to simply tolerate things, knowing God is sovereign because it's okay to do things we simply don't like. When we are annoyed, you know, earthquakes don't happen. We're just annoyed. But in the rare cases, the very rare cases that compel us to do evil, to join into evil, or to have false worship like Daniel, regardless of the outcome, we remain civil, but we disobey in faith because there's a higher throne. This is what Daniel does. So we're going to put it out of park. We're going to to continue. And Daniel gets in trouble for this. Verse 16. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel, and they threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you continually serve, rescue you. And a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his signet ring, and with the signet rings of their nobles, they were kind of doing that so nobody could change their mind, and you can't triple stamp a double stamp. Anyways, they did this so nothing could be changed. Then the king went to the palace, and he spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and he could not sleep. Here we have a very reluctant king. He is regretting that he has to be in this position. He feels like he has to punish Daniel. Conflicted, though, because he values this guy, Um, but the rules is rules, and he knows if he doesn't follow through, his uh, inferiors, his underlings, might conspire against him so he's fasting. He's sleepless. And when it says that he has no diversions, it's very interesting. Historians note about Darius that he was known to, and I quote, indulge in wine and women. He is so torn up here, though, that he's abstaining. He's reverent. He's afraid. He's kind of scared straight. And for a number of reasons, uh, one of which being his cowardice, Daniel is not going to be saved by the king. And he knows Daniel can't save himself. And so, as a last resort, he does what many of us do. He invokes God. <laughs> May God save you, right? That's what, he, what it, that's what he calls out. So, what I want to do here at this moment, just to kind of show the stakes, I want to give you a better picture of Daniel in the lion's den. This is a painting from the 1800s. It's less cute because what we see here is a frail 80 something year old man because he was very old. He's bound before 400-pound apex predators. And it's in this moment where Daniel is recognized for continually serving God, in this moment. He served him when he was young. He served him when his career was flourishing and taking off. Now he serves him when he's old and when he's before the lions, continually serving God. How about you and I? When people and circumstances are for us, Let's go, God. When people and circumstances are against us, what are we made of then? Well, because of this, um, (laughs) if you think about it, uh, Darius couldn't really see Daniel's faith, right? Faith is by nature kind of this invisible thing, but what he could do is he could observe his behavior, his character, and his conduct was so sterling that it prompted the king to call out his God, I could say it like this, at day's end, Daniel's conduct was his apologetic. I was reading this uh, past week about Gen Z um, because I like to party, and um, that's the generation that's like 12 to lower 20s, the kind of coming of age, and one of the things that I noted in this article was particularly about how suspicious they are of empty talk of just saying the right things. And as much as we like to disparage younger generations and tell them to get off our lawns, um, what we need to do is sometimes appreciate some of the discernment that they might have, that they won't give credibility to people just because of their position, their title, or their power. They're convinced that action matters. And if we want to speak to this generation, influence, and bring this generation along, our actions, our character, how we treat people really, really matters. And so I'm so encouraged to know that Darius was spiritually influenced by Daniel's character. And now he is waiting with bated breath to see if this God would deliver. What kind of God did Daniel have? What kind of God do we have? Do we have a God that rescues us from the den of lions? Do we have that kind of God or do we have some imagination? Do we have a motivational poster or do we have a living God with limitless power? He gets up at dawn. He hurries down to functionally what was the tune and then he calls out, has your God been able to rescue you? People are looking at us when we're in these dens and they say, is your God able to rescue you? Daniel spoke to the king. May the king live forever. God sent his angel. Put a pin in that. We'll come back to that. God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. And they haven't harmed me for I was found innocent before him and also before you, your majesty. I have not done harm. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to take Daniel up on the up out of the den. Daniel was brought up from the den, and he was found not to be harmed, for he trusted, or because he trusted in his God. Uh, Daniel, here, I want to point out, is soft-hearted. He's not the way many of us would be. (laughs) He's not bitter at the king for putting him there. A lot of us would say, "You can go someplace else." But he said, "I want you to go to heaven." I want you to live forever. Do, do we wish that on the people who harm us? Do, do we wish that they would live forever? And then verse 23, the narrator claims that he was saved because. That he was saved because he trusted in his God. There's this through line in scripture. You, you see this through the Old Testament patriarchs. We, you see this in the clear doctrinal writings of Paul that God saves people who trust him, that by faith his grace comes to us. And then we also have this huge question of great importance who is it that shut the lion's mouths? You see, Daniel said, God sent his angel. And if we pay attention in the Old Testament, there's different ways people speak about angels. He didn't say he sent an angel, a run-of-the-mill angel. What he says, he sent his angel. When the Bible speaks of the angel of the Lord or his angel, this is a unique singular person who shows up time and time again. Theologians call this a Christophany. A Christophany. I know it's a $5 word, but it's actually priceless. This is an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. When the pre-incarnate Jesus shows up on the scene prior to his bodily experience, not a regular angel, but Jesus himself. What this means is both images, not just the cartoon that I have shown you, were inadequate. That there's more to the picture. There's something more to the picture because there's someone more. To the picture because neither included Jesus, the true hero, who shuts the lions' mouths. So the conclusion of the story, uh, most of us know this: that the king threw the accusers and their families into the pit, and, and they are dead on arrival. It shows a few things. Number one, these are really powerful lions. These are not like Detroit lions. I, it, I just couldn't. It's just, it's just right there, anyways. <laughs> but we'll keep praying because we're people of faith, right? (laughs) But these were dangerous, powerful lions, and it wasn't a coincidence that they were just tame or well-fed, right? This isn't just an indulged story that this is actually miracles that we're dealing with. Number two, it shows us that Daniel's faith is inseparable from his deliverance, that you can't separate deliverance and faith, The king is so moved by what he sees that he sends a decree throughout the entire empire that people of every language, every ethnicity would learn about this God of Daniel. He says this about this God. He is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed. That's why we lean into him for citizenship and allegiance. His dominion has no end. He rescues and delivers. He performs signs and wonders in heaven and on the earth, where he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Get this, because Daniel went into that lion's den in faith. The biggest geographic empire that the world had ever seen spanning three continents. A multitude of diverse peoples would hear the good news about a God who saves people who put the faith in him. That's the story. That's, that's, that's Daniel 6. And one thing that is kind of stubborn about stories, when you, when you go to a story, it usually doesn't have action steps. Like you read Paul in the New Testament. He's like, stop this. Knock it off. Start doing that. But stories are kind of left there, and this is why sometimes they get twisted and turned. So how do we apply it to us here and now? Well, first, um, I want to uh, tell us how not to imply it. That one of the ways that we, we can mishandle this is, say, Daniel's the hero. I mean, after all, Daniel is pretty admirable, more brave than most would be. But the real protagonist of, of this story and of this book is the one who shuts the mouths of lions Think about it. Daniel, despite the wisdom, the gift, the courage, those those were all derivative. He was just a recipient of God's power and God's grace. So let's return now to the, the guiding question for this morning. How do you and I become people of resilience, of faithfulness, and honor, despite the hardships that we face? How do we do this? How do we become truly remarkable, not for our glory, but for God's? Well, I I have um, three ideas for you to glorify the one that's worth glorifying, the one who shuts the mouths of lions. Three ideas. Number one, we need to be honorable exiles. We need to see ourselves. We often need a perspective change that our highest allegiance, that our ultimate citizenship, is to his kingdom. Because those kind of citizens radically live different lives here and now. In the New Testament, This is what Peter says to persecuted Christians. He says, see yourselves as strangers and exiles, abstain from sinful desires. And then he goes on and says, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when, he doesn't say if, darn it, when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and they will glorify God on the day that he visits us submit to every human authority. And of course, he's saying this unless it's a case of civil disobedience according to biblical submission. Submit because of the Lord. He doesn't say because of the office or the official or because of your voting record, but because of the person who's ultimately on the throne. Then he lists emperors, governors, etc. Verse 15, for it is God's will that you will silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Not by complaining, not by bumper stickers. Submit as free people then, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and the sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. He wrote this under the emperor Nero. If you know anything about Roman history... Nero was perhaps one of the most vicious rulers our world has ever seen. He's the guy associated with the great fire of Rome. He sets Rome on fire because he wants to change some real estate, blames the Christians, Christians in the arena, Christians lit as torches on the street of Rome. He says, honor him. The thing is, if we know where our true home lies, if we ultimately bow our knee to heaven, we can live secure, peaceable lives, honorable lives in a very fallen society. And the thing is, Daniel saw himself as an exile, serving a a different throne, having a distant country far off. And that king empowered him to live differently, no matter what came his way. So let's glorify God by being honorable exiles. Number two, we have to know uh, that lion's dens still exist. God is so good. And even on this side of of heaven, we experience a lot of joys. There's still high highs and sweet days, um, but lion's dens exist. And another misunderstanding of this story is that if you obey God, it'll work out for you. If you obey God, if you are faithful and you are bold, you're going to flourish. It's not true. And not only is that not true, this produces a flimsy faith that can't handle reality. We can't walk around believing that if I just do things right and I obey, it'll put God in my debt, and then nothing bad will happen. That's not the case. Hebrews 11, very famous chapter in the New Testament. is where we get this hall of faith. There's a statement about what faith is, that it's impossible. To please, God, without faith. And then it runs through this, this great chronicle of different people who have been uh, forerunners in the faith, people that we should aspire to be like, people that we're thankful for. And there's this triumphant vein, and it just goes on for verse after verse of these great things that people have done because of their faith. Verse, verse 33, I'll just pick it up. It says, who by faith did sorts of things like this. They conquered kingdoms. They administered justice. They obtained promises. They shut the mouths of lions. There's the Daniel reference. Just an optimistic blurb about successes. And a lot of us, we know people who you met Jesus and life turned around. You stopped doing some very destructive stuff, you started doing some great stuff, and life is moving forward. Awesome. Praise God when that happens. But you gotta read the whole passage. Because in verse 35, it takes a turn, a very dark turn, about these people of faith. Other people, other people of faith were tortured. Not accepting release so that they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins, goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. Faithfulness also can look like rejection and pain, because in this world there are many lions, and they bite. This is why we need a greater kingdom. We need a greater king, a greater deliverance that overcomes. We need to know, as realists, that lions still exist. Number three, we we'll let this one take us home. The best way I think that we can glorify the one who shuts the mouths of lions is to be saved By the better Daniel. At the end of the day, um, Daniel 6 is not just story time. It's not just story time divorced from Jesus. It's an arrow that points to Jesus. Uh, Bible nerds would call uh, Daniel a type. They would say this is a typology. A type is someone who points to a greater someone. He's a type, someone that would come later. Uh, Think about this story. See if it reminds you, especially if you've been around church, see if this reminds you of anyone, anything. Um, someone is placed functionally in a tomb, sealed by a rock. Early in the morning, somebody runs out to that tomb where you would expect death, and guess what? Life has triumphed over death. This sounds a little bit like Easter, doesn't it? On this uh, chapter, I've heard uh, Tim Keller point out that Daniel 6 is closely connected and integrated with Psalm 22, which Jesus recited when he was on the cross, when he was saying that about, speaking about being forsaken, that Jesus fulfilled that psalm. In that psalm, it speaks to dealing with the wrath of lions with their open mouths. Lions throughout, particularly the Old Testament, are associated with wrath and justice. Where am I going with all of this? The idea is that Jesus faced the justice of God in the ultimate den for us. So while Daniel was spared for our encouragement under the law of Darius, Jesus was killed for our salvation under the law of God himself. And in doing so, he shut the mouths of the ultimate lions of sin, Satan, and death so that we get to emerge from that den unscathed so that we can face the little lion's dens that life throws our way, so that we can take this good news of a God who saves those who trust him to the rest of the known world. Let's pray. Father, I thank you uh, this day that you are the God that shuts the mouths of lions. I pray for my brothers and sisters here today uh, that we would be people of faith, that we would live as exiles, knowing whose we are, knowing you're in control. By your spirit, give us power. Give us wisdom. Help us to see you clearly. Love you more dearly. Amen.